You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. All right, Acts chapter 10, we're going to pick it up here at verse 24, and uh, hopefully with the help of some cough drops, my uh, voice is going to hold out just fine. Um, I I trust so. Um, As we come now to Acts chapter 10, verse 24, we're coming really to one of the amazing turning points in the New Testament. Boy, it's funny, I can feel my voice a little strained right now. So it's one of those evenings where it's really a great text, and I want it like, but I kind of have to ratchet it down a little bit. So we'll just see how, how this works, okay? All right. It's a turning point in the book of Acts. It's a turning point in God's plan of redemption. If you take Acts chapter 10 and everything before that, God's whole plan of redemption was focused on the Jewish people, right? Now, God cared about all the nations. God cared about the world. But the expression of his care was, here is my shining light, Israel, If you want to get right with me, come through Israel. That's basically a summation of what God was doing to that point, even after the day of Pentecost. Because up to this point, you could say that Jewish, excuse me, that Gentile people were saved, but they were saved as first they became Jews and then they became followers of Jesus. Because it was just embedded in everybody's mind that you had to be a Jew to be a follower of Jesus. Is this any great mystery? Now, you, you might think, well, that's crazy. Who would think that? It's totally logical, isn't it? Again, I like Sunday nights. I can go off on some tangents. I don't, I just, I feel a little more liberty than I do on Sunday mornings, okay? Look, um, Jesus was Jewish, right? Is this a shock to anybody? Um, he grew up in a total Jewish environment. Did Almost all his ministry, there's a couple remarkable exceptions, but virtually all his ministry was done among the Jewish people, right? He said as much, I've been sent to the lost sheep of Israel, right? That was his ministry. The 12 disciples and then apostles were Jewish, right? The 120 people that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon praying in the upper room on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 were Jewish, right? The 3,000 souls who were converted on the day of Pentecost and trusted in Jesus after preaching a prayer, they were all Jewish, right? All of them. Now, we see this starting to get stirred up in Acts chapters 8 and 9, where first some Samaritans trust in Christ, and then Philip is preaching and some others are preaching, in the cities of the Gentiles. And I believe that the preaching was effective and some Gentiles were saved. But look, those Gentiles became Jews and then they became Christians. Right? That was just the idea. Because it was just fixed in everybody's mind that to be a Christian, you first had to become Jewish. I mean, it's logical, right? If Right now, today, we think it's weird. But if you just put your mindset back in that, well, of course it makes sense, Right? All of that's going to get upset right here in Acts chapter 10. Because previously in Acts chapter 10, 
I know this was a few weeks ago, but I'll just remind God gave Peter a dream. Peter, the first apostle, right? The great apostle of the early church. He gave Peter a dream that prepared him for this. And he spoke through a guy named Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, who was what we call a God-fearer. That was a man who respected the God of Israel, who honored the God of Israel, who kept some of the Jewish laws and traditions, but stopped short of full conformity to the Jewish law, most notably he was not circumcised and didn't keep a kosher diet. So God is going to work through Cornelius and through Peter. And when we last left our scene in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius had sent three men to go fetch Peter. Cornelius lived in Caesarea. Peter lived in Joppa. He sent three men, two servants and a soldier, to go get Peter. And it was a remarkable thing when Peter invited those men into his home. They spent the night. And now Peter has agreed to go back with them to Caesarea to meet this man, Cornelius. Okay, you ready for that? Verse 24. I would never do such a long introduction on Sunday morning, but I can do it with you guys. <laughs> and the following day, they entered Caesarea. The, the they is Peter. Okay, I, I'll just run through the thing. There's Peter. There's the three servants from uh, Cornelius, two servants and a soldier. Peter brought with him three guys. It says earlier in the text, um, verse 23 says, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied them. I think it was three or four. So altogether, the party is seven or eight people in total. Okay, going back to Caesarea. Verse 24 again. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was waiting for them. Now, I love that. It's just a side point. But to me, it's one of those delightful little things in the scriptures. To show you what a man of faith Cornelius was. That's faith, people. I'm going to dispatch three guys to go get a guy who doesn't know me and I don't know him. All I know is that he's a pious Jewish man and he's not supposed to have any interaction with Gentiles. But I believe that God's going to touch his heart and have him do a two-day walk to come back and meet me. And now, not just to believe that that might work. Cornelius is waiting. He's expecting, okay, they should be here any minute. He's fully expecting that they'll show up. Man, that's faith. I love this Cornelius guy. Anyway, now Cornelius was waiting for them. And had called together his relatives and close friends. So it wasn't just Cornelius at the house, right? They were all gathered to get a bunch of people there. They're all waiting for Peter to show up. Peter's going to preach to us. Peter's going to come. Who's Peter? I don't know who Peter is. God just told me to send for him. Okay? As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. Beautiful. Here... As Cornelius sees, because he's sitting there waiting out in front of his house, right? As he sees Peter and the group of guys coming, Cornelius comes out of the house. And when he sees Peter, he bows down before him and goes, Peter, I don't know who you are, but I know that you are important enough for God to speak to me in a vision to go and get you. And you actually came. I want to honor you. And he bowed down before him. And what did Peter say? He said, no way. What did he say? He said, stand up. I myself am also a man. Even though Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet and worshipped him, Peter was not going to receive that worship. He didn't say something like, you know, yeah, you should do this. I am the first pope or something like that. That's a little side joke. He didn't say anything like that. By the way, and again, this is Sunday night. I can say this. 
By the way, I have no problem with anybody calling Peter the first pope. None at all. I believe that Peter had a unique place of authority in the early church. Absolutely. And I'd love to go through the biblical argument. My, my difficulty is not in calling Peter the first pope. My problem is in thinking that Peter somehow passed that office down to successive people. That, that's my contention. But if you want to call Peter the first pope, great. He was the first and the last pope, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway. I think it's beautiful how Cornelius and Peter honored each other. What do I mean by that? Peter honored Cornelius. How did he honor Cornelius? Because he was willing to walk two days to meet with him. Wouldn't it have been easy for Peter to say to Cornelius, hey man, if you want to meet with me, why don't you walk the two days and come meet me in Joppa, right? Wouldn't that have been easy? Peter could have said something. No, I'm an apostle for heaven's sakes. Jesus gave me the keys to the kingdom or whatever. You come see me. But he didn't do that. Peter said, no, even though I don't know who this guy Cornelius is, even though all I know is that he's a Roman, he's a centurion, he's a Gentile, I am still going to go and visit him. He did that. Isn't that wonderful? He honored Cornelius by visiting him. And then obviously Cornelius honored Peter. And it's a glorious thing when people in the body of Christ honor one another. That's exactly what Paul would later write about Romans 12.10. It says that we should in honor giving preference to one another. That's what we should do. We should always be looking for ways to honor one another. That's a fun thing to do in the body of Christ. Honoring one another. What Peter and Cornelius were doing at one to another, even though Cornelius was not yet converted. All right, now going on now, verse 27. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. (laughs) This is mind-blowing right there. Just that first line from verse 27. So do you get it? They're outside the house. They're talking together, and they walked in the house. All right. You guys don't think that's anything big deal at all. No, you don't understand. It's huge. Peter is an observant Jew. He's a Christian, but he's still an observant Jew. Does everybody understand that, right? He has not abandoned his Judaism one bit. He still keeps kosher. He still observes the Sabbath. He still goes to Jerusalem for the festivals. He still observes the ceremonial laws for purity and impurity. He's still an observant Jew, right? He hasn't, he hasn't departed any of that. Now, he no longer does the sacrifices, right? The sacrificial system is dead for Peter, but none of the other aspects of the Jewish law. He's still an observant Jew, even though he trusts fully in Jesus as his Messiah. Therefore, those two words are three words, he went in. Those are remarkable. Because a pious Jew would not go into the home of a Gentile. It was a huge thing. It was a heart-beating thing. It was like, oh boy, should I do this? When he walked over the threshold and actually entered into the house of a Gentile, much less a Roman centurion. Peter had to say, I'm going to leave Jewish traditions behind. I'm going to leave Jewish customs behind. I know that the night before, a couple nights before, I invited these Gentiles to come and spend the night in my house. But now I'm going to go step into the house of a Gentile. That's not something that, because according to Jewish ceremonial law, now, This is not biblical law. This is based on customs and traditions, not Bible. But according to their ceremonial and traditional law, the moment Peter stepped into that Gentile's house, he became ceremonially unclean. But you know what Peter said? He said, those are customs and traditions. That's not Bible. I don't care. I'm going to do it because God's telling me to do it. And so he walked into that house. 
He went in. If you underline things in your Bible, do it right now. Underline those words. He went in. Those are big words. To us, it doesn't have the impact. But if you were a Jew of the first century, you'd read that and go, what? He went in? He's not supposed to go in his house. They're supposed to have the whole conversation outside the house. But he went in, and then it says, and found many who had come together. Again, that's the whole group that, that Cornelius had gathered, right? They're all waiting to hear from Peter. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go with one of another nation, right? He's just explaining what a big deal it was for him to go in. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked them, for what reason have you sent me? Listen, Cornelius, normally I would never step foot in your home. All my Jewish traditions, all my Jewish customs told me, no, you're not supposed to do that. But, but I believe that God has spoken to me and told me that I should do this. And I know it doesn't contradict his word. That's why I'm here. That's why before you. Now, Cornelius, what do you want with me? I love that. The the end of verse 29 there. Uh, For what reason have you sent for me? Why exactly am I here, Cornelius? Can you explain this to me? Well, Cornelius is going to explain right there in verse 30. So Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging at the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Isn't that wonderful? Cornelius explains, okay, Peter, let me explain to you why I called you. I was praying in my house. As a matter of fact, I wasn't just praying a little bit. Oh, Lord, bless my day and bless everybody else. No, he was fasting and praying. Now, I'd want to get on the whole thing in fasting right here, even though it would be profitable. Let's talk about it. But just to say this, in this context, Cornelius' fasting demonstrates his intensity, right? He's seeking after God. Man, he's seeking after God. So much so that he's fasting, he's praying, he's really seeking God. And then what happens? Verse 31, God sends him a vision. And in the vision, a man speaks to Cornelius and says, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Okay, by the way, I can do this. This is Sunday evening. I go off a little excursion here. Was Cornelius born again at this point? What do you think? Was he? No. Not yet, right? It's going to happen later in Acts. At this point, not yet. Was he a good man, at least in the eyes of men? Yes, he was. He was a religious man. God calls him a good man. It's good. Okay, great. But I want you to notice something. He was not yet born again, yet God still heard his prayers, right? Now, this is upsetting to some people. Some people. No, God can't hear the prayers of anybody who doesn't pray in Jesus' name. Now, look, let me clarify this. Jesus has promised to hear the prayers of anybody who prays in Jesus' name. Do you understand that? Do you understand what it means to pray in the name of Jesus? To pray in the name of Jesus does not merely mean to tack on in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer. Right? That's not all it means. 
To pray in Jesus' name means to pray with the heart of Jesus, to pray with the mind of Jesus, to pray in the will of Jesus, and most importantly, to pray with Jesus as your mediator, as the one who's the go-between, between you and the Father. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And Jesus promised, if you pray in my name, I'll hear you. doesn't mean they always answer yes, right? Because sometimes God, in his goodness, in his great love for us, says no to our prayers. How many of you want to praise God this evening for prayers that God said no to, right? That girl in high school that you were so convinced that was the right one for you, right? You look at her now and you say, Lord, thank you. Lord, that's... Well, whatever, okay? Or something like that, you know? All right, the car you were getting. You know what I mean. Now, God has promised... God has promised to hear prayer offered in Jesus' name. Now, in his mercy, in his grace, he will often hear the prayers of those who are not yet believers in Jesus. Has he promised to do so? Not necessarily. But God is a God who's rich in mercy. And listen, he has promised this. If you're seeking after him, you'll find him. Cornelius was seeking after God. He was going to find him. He was seeking hard after God, praying and fasting. If tonight you are seeking after God, Jesus is here to meet you. He is. He's here to answer you. Not, not, not because he's obligated to, but because he loves you and he'll meet you with his mercy. I, I just think it's interesting. God specifically says, Cornelius, you're not yet born again, but I've heard your prayers and I've noticed your generosity before God. That's in verse 31. Anyway, at the end of it all, verse 33, this is great at verse 33. He says to Peter, now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded to you by God. Isn't that great? Okay, we're ready, Peter. Preach to us. This is a preacher's dream to have a bunch of people in front of him. And they're all like, okay, we believe God sent you. Now speak to us, preacher. That's a preacher's dream. And you know what? I tell you, that's one of the reasons I love this congregation here at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. I, I feel that people come expecting to hear God speak to them. They come believing that God has something to say to them. Now listen, it, it's very important for the preacher to be prepared to preach. Believe me, I, I'm big on that. The preacher better be prepared. You better do your homework. You better understand what the text says. You better have thought how to explain it. You better have an idea from the Holy Spirit what he wants you to emphasize. It's all very important for the preacher to be prepared on many different levels. But can I say this? The congregation better be prepared too. You better be prepared to come hear the word of God. You, you, you should have your, your Bible with you and your Bible open. doesn't matter if it's on pages or if it's on your, you know, phone or electronic thing. Although, look, if you see somebody and they're playing games on their phone instead of looking at you can poke them in the ribs or something like that. It's okay. But listen, it's, but you should have your Bible in front of you. Because you should be looking and thinking about what I'm saying and making sure I'm cutting it straight. Don't you ever assume that just because somebody opens up a Bible and starts talking that they're actually teaching from the Bible. And I never, ever, ever mind somebody asking a question saying, listen, you said this, but it says right here in the Bible. What about this? I love questions like that. So you should be prepared that way, but you should especially be prepared with what I call the expectancy of faith. You come expecting that God is going to speak to you. And even if it's through nothing I say, 
Nothing at all. Maybe nothing I say makes any sense to you or touches your heart at all. That's okay. If you've got an ear to hear, the Holy Spirit will speak to you anyway, right? He'll whisper to your heart if you come with that expectancy of faith. Listen, you, you probably experience it. You may experience it with me. You experience it with other people. Where you hear it, and, and you know what? Not a single thing the preacher said made any sense to you, but God spoke to you beautifully that morning, right? Well, if you come with that expectancy of faith, God will do it. The preacher needs to be prepared. The people need to be prepared. When both of them are prepared, man, it's glorious before God. So, all right, Peter's ready. Oh, he's like chomping at the bit. Woo, man, this is great. People are ready here. So now he begins, verse 34. And I'm going to read this long section, verse 34 to verse 43, because it's, it's Peter's whole message here. Now, let me just say this. I believe that Peter's message was probably actually longer than this. When you see sermons recorded in the book of Acts, usually they're condensed. I'm not trying to apply for a moment that they're false. Peter actually said this. But I believe he probably said a lot more as well. And Luke is giving us the Cliff Notes version, just the, the, you know, the condensed version here. Anyway, starting at verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly not to all the people but to witnesses chosen before by God even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. That is a glorious, condensed version of the life and the ministry and the work of Jesus. But that's not where Peter starts. Peter starts by observing this in verse 34. He says, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. I just want you to think about this for a minute. To this point, Peter had done a lot of preaching, don't you think? He had done a lot of evangelistic preaching, but never deliberate evangelism to Gentiles. He had done a lot of preaching to believers, but never preached to Gentiles. He might have preached to Gentiles who'd become Jews, but they had become Jews, right? He had never really preached to a Gentile audience before. And now he looks over his audience and they're not Jewish. They're not wearing the Jewish garments. They don't have the Jewish phylacteries and adornments and all that kind of thing. They don't look Jewish, you know, in an ethnic sense. There they are, just a bunch of Gentiles in front of him. And the first thing on his mind is he looks at those people and he goes, you know what? God doesn't play favorites. God shows no partiality. God loves you. You Gentiles, just as much as he loves the Jewish people. That's the first words out of his mouth. You know what's glorious about that? Is that is not how the Jewish people of the first century generally thought. 
There was a tremendous amount of animosity between the Jews of the first century and the Gentiles of the first century. Did you know that anti-Semitism is nothing new? But way back in the first century, and before, of course, way back 2,000 years ago, Gentiles hated Jews. But I'll tell you this, Jews hated Gentiles. They did. They hated each other. So much so that it was a a daily prayer that many, I don't want to imply for a moment that every Jewish person 2,000 years ago thought this way, or that every person prayed this prayer, but a common prayer to start the day for a Jewish man in the first century went something like this, God, I thank you that I am not a slave, that I'm not a Gentile, and I'm not a woman. Well, yeah, that's pretty tough, isn't it? That's how they would begin their prayer. That's how they begin their day with that prayer. It went so far to say this, that they would take an oath saying that it was forbidden to help a Gentile in any way. A Gentile comes to you on the street and asks directions, you don't help him. Uh, a Gentile woman's giving birth, you can't help her. Even if you help her, all you're doing is bring another Gentile into the world. Now look, I don't want to imply for a moment that every Jewish person that day felt that way, nor do I want to imply that it was a one-way street. No, If anything, Gentiles hated Jews more than Jews hated Gentiles. But there was a lot of animosity between the two. You want to know how much Jews were hated by the Gentiles? The Gentiles looked at the Jewish people and they said they're weird religious traditionalists. They're evil plotters and that they worship pigs. Do you know that's what they said about Jews in the first century? They said that they worship pigs. Why would they say they worship pigs? Well, they don't eat them, right? They must worship them. That's why they won't eat them. Weird, twisting, bizarre things, lies about one or the other, they would say. Listen, all of that changed with the spread of the gospel. Christianity was the first religion to disregard racial, cultural, and national limitations. They said the gospel is for everybody. Matter of fact, notice what he said there in verse 35. This is glorious. He said, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Whoever. Whoever fears him, whoever works righteousness, that one is accepted by him. Now, please understand, Peter's point was not to imply that men like Cornelius were already right with God and didn't need to become Christians. Instead, the point was that they should not feel excluded from God because of their national background. And that's a message for today as well. You know, some people think that God only sees color, but no, God only sees the heart. God doesn't see economic status. He only sees the heart. He doesn't see nationality or ethnic group. God sees the heart. That's what God cares about. So much so that in verse 36, he says, He is Lord of all. That's a powerful phrase. Not only showing that Jesus is God, but that Jesus is God of all. I love that. No partiality. You can come to God. Now look, I... I have to go off on a little digression here that I didn't deal with on Sunday morning, but like I say, Sunday evenings, I feel the liberty. I always try to look at a passage and think, how might some people that I might disagree with look at this passage? How might this passage resonate in the modern Christian world that I think is having some trouble in faithfulness to God today? And I would look at this passage as a passage where people would try to justify, how do I phrase this? They would try to justify that a person can be a practicing homosexual and still be fine with God. 
This is what they would say. They would say, just as much as Gentiles were excluded in the ancient world, homosexuals are excluded in the modern world. And just as much as God spoke to Peter and said, open the gates wide to the Gentiles, so should the church today say, we open the gates wide to practicing homosexuals. Now, let me say, I think that actually there's a touch of that that is correct. And let me explain the touch with that I think is correct. I think we have to make a very clear distinction between people who have homosexual inclinations and people who are practicing homosexuals. Homosexual inclinations are something that I think many people deal with and many people in our own congregation they deal with and there are people who may feel a tremendous burden of guilt and wonder how God accepts them and what they should do because they feel tempted by things that, that the society and many people in the church disapprove of and they wonder how they should deal with it. Listen. If you feel an inclination towards sin, and I would regard homosexual practice as sin, if you feel inclined to sin, you're surrounded by people who also feel inclined to sin. Are you not? Now, they may be inclined towards different sins than you are inclined to, but every one of us, every one of us is a, is a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. We have inherited an inclination towards sin. God does not condemn you. God does not hate you for your inclination towards sin. Your inclination towards sin does not disqualify you for the kingdom of God. And if in that sense we say, let's open the arms of the church towards those who struggle with homosexual inclinations, then the church should be doing that loud and clear today. And I would proclaim it right now. Now, we make a big distinction between that and the practice of homosexuality. The practice of homosexuality is, and, and look, I don't know how to sugarcoat this, and, and I don't know how to have time, to, but I'll just say it, that the Bible says that it's sinful conduct. It, it, the Bible doesn't mark it out as being especially sinful conduct, but it is, it is what we would call sexual sin, and it is sexual sin among many sexual sins. I don't look at the person who, who struggles with uh, homosexual inclinations as to be any worse than the person who struggles with adulterous inclinations. Both of them are struggling with sexual sin. And I would say to both of them, don't practice your inclinations. Look to the power of God and look to his Jesus' saving work in your life and do not practice such inclinations. Now, that's what I believe God's message would be to people in that. Matter of fact, I think Peter makes it so clear. This offer to Cornelius, this word of saying God shows no partiality. That's not any partiality based on conduct. Because notice this, I want to read verse 35. Can we look at verse 35 one more time? But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Right? Therefore, for somebody to say, I can give myself whatever sexual practice I want to give to, and God will fully accept me, friends, that's just not biblical. And, and I don't care if the sinful practice you're talking about is heterosexual in character or if it's homosexual in character. So I think what we have to do in this is make a very clear distinction between 
inclinations and practices. And if somebody is struggling with uh, uh, the inclination towards sexual sin, whether it be heterosexual sin or homosexual sin, we would just say there's love and grace and power and forgiveness and goodness for you and mercy for you in God. To the person who has given themselves over to the practice of sexual sin, whether it be heterosexual or homosexual, the word goes out and it says, you need to repent. You need to make it right with God. You need to receive the forgiveness that God offers and turn your life away from the practice of such sin. Anyway, those are just some of the things I think about when I think about how these words can be thought of or interpreted today. Nevertheless, starting in verse 37, Peter gives a great summary of the work and ministry of Jesus. He says, verse 37, Jesus was baptized in identification with humanity. Verse 38, Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. Verse 38 again, Jesus went about doing good and healing, delivering those who were oppressed by the devil. Verse 38 again, Jesus did this with the power of God because God was with him. On to verse 39, Jesus did these things in the presence of eyewitnesses. Verse 39 again, Jesus was crucified. Verses 40 and 41, Jesus was raised from the dead, resurrected in the view of many witnesses. Verse 42, Jesus commanded his followers to preach the message of who he is and what he did. Verse 42 again, Jesus is ordained by God to be the judge of the entire world. And then verse 43, Jesus is the one foretold by the prophets. I mean, look at that point, 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 point. That's a very succinct and powerful expression of who Jesus is and what he did. And at the end of all that, he gives this great statement, verse 43, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. This brief sermon concluded with an understanding of the broadness of God's promise of salvation. Notice it carefully. Whoever believes, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, white or black, good or wicked, rich or poor, whoever believes, you put your trust in Jesus, you turn to him and away from your sin, and you will be forgiven your sins. Isn't that beautiful? You'll be forgiven. This forgiveness is openly offered to all. You believe on Jesus. And friends, inherent in the call to believe is a call to repent, to turn towards Jesus and away from our sin. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. You know, I wish I knew what that looked like. I wish I knew. Don't you? Now... We know that it had to do with some phenomenon of spiritual gifts because in just a few moments, it's going to mention that they spontaneously praised God, magnified God in these previously unknown tongues to them, just like the apostles and the other followers of Jesus did on the day of Pentecost. So we know that was something like it. But, but I believe there was more to it than that. Let, let's read the whole section. Verse 44 again. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many who came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these who have, should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and they asked him to stay a few days. 
I don't know exactly how it happened. But while they were listening to Peter, the sermon was interrupted in some visible, demonstrable way. The Holy Spirit was poured out on people and people believed unto salvation. They believed unto forgiveness. I don't know what it was like. I'll tell you what's in my mind. This might not be accurate at all, but it's just what I think. I believe that somebody stood up and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they said, I believe. I want to repent of my sins. I want that. Look at the last words Peter said. Verse 43. Whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Can't you imagine some of them standing up and saying, I want that. That's for me. And at that moment, just the Holy Spirit falling on it. Then everybody agrees. I believe I want some of that. And they're instantly filled with the Holy Spirit in a radical, remarkable way. Listen, it's just remarkable to see what God did. And he did it to them as they were still Gentiles. They did not have to go through Moses to Jesus. God was saying, you can come to me directly, Gentiles. Not a one of them was circumcised. Not a one of them had observed kosher dietary regulations or the ceremonial law. The doorway was wide open for them as Gentiles to come to Jesus directly. And it blew everybody's mind. Everybody. Look at it right there. It says in verse 45, those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. They're like, you've got to be kidding me. This amazing gift of the Holy Spirit and repentance is poured out upon these people. And they still got a ham sandwich in their hand. What's up with that? (laughs) He's still picking out the bacon from his teeth. I I can't believe it. And the Holy Spirit's down upon these guys. How can that be? You see what a powerful thing this was? God was making it loud and clear. Now, this is what really blew my mind. I never considered this before. Okay, it says in verse 45... Those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. Those were the people who accompanied Peter from Joppa, right? Now, I'm assuming, I know it's a bit of assumption, but come on, give me a little bit of slack here. I'm assuming that these were people who were saved after the day of Pentecost, not on the day of Pentecost. They had not personally experienced the phenomenon of the day of Pentecost, right? Now, Peter had experienced it, right? He was there. But I'm assuming that these other ones who came with Peter, they were saved in the eight, nine, or ten years since the day of Pentecost. They had not experienced personally the phenomenon of the day of Pentecost. But these Gentiles get to experience it even though they had not. You know what he was saying? He was not just saying that the Gentiles' salvation was equal to the Jews. God was even going beyond that. He was saying that the Gentiles' salvation was equal to the apostles'. Because that's what they received on the day of Pentecost. It was a huge, massive, I don't know, like 10-ton stamp of approval upon what God was doing among the Gentiles. God saying, you don't have to come through Moses to come to me. I will deal with the Gentiles directly. They can come straight unto me. Isn't that glorious? And now today, we take it for granted, don't we? Have any of you struggled with this idea that you have to go through Moses in order to get to Jesus? You probably never thought of it before, right? But there was a time in the church when it was just taken for granted that's what you had to do. But all of it changed right here. And now I hope you understand, just as they understand, that you can come straight to Jesus. Straight to Him. You don't have to go through Moses. You don't have to go through me. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through an organization. You can go straight to Jesus and he will bring you the forgiveness of sins if you will repent and put your trust in him. Now, just to demonstrate that these people were fully, full-fledged members of the body of Christ, what does Peter do? 
Look at it right there. It's towards the end of the chapter. Right there it says, verse 47, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? I imagine Peter looking at his fellow Jewish Christian friends, right? Who came to sort of observe and supervise. He goes, are you guys going to deny them to be baptized? Look, at they got the same thing we got on the day of Pentecost. You didn't even get that. Are you going to deny them that they should be baptized? And then I love what it says in verse 48. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. I never really noticed that before. But I've never gone around commanding somebody to be baptized. But isn't that cool? He looked at those Gentiles and he goes, You believe? I command you to go get baptized. Go now. You go. We're going to baptize you now. Well, I don't know if I want you to get baptized now, Peter says. I command you to get baptized. You know, because he's saying, Don't you dare think that you're a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Don't you dare think that. Don't you dare think that God has two kind of categories, that there's Jewish believers and Gentile believers, or there's this kind of believer and that kind, but there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. As it's been said before, it's kind of a cliche, but I'll repeat it. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come there together. There's not two different kinds of salvation. There's not one salvation for the white and another salvation for the black. There's not one salvation for the rich and another salvation for the poor. And I'll even go further. There's not one salvation for the smart and another one for the dumb. We all come to Jesus equally, do we not? It's all there. There's no second class citizens. God receives us all in Jesus Christ. And he just says, you come and I will receive you. And to demonstrate, he commanded them to be baptized. Don't you dare think of yourselves as second class citizens. But I also think that the command was also for the Jewish friends who were there. I look at Peter, I know I'm embellishing a little bit on the text, but grant me this. He looks at those Jewish believers and he says, I command you guys to go baptize them. Do it. I want you to receive them into the body of Christ as full-fledged members of our family. We are one. Later on, the Apostle Paul would say that God has broken down the partition, the wall that separated Jew and Gentile, and he broke it down. So much so that in the early church, they used to say, we're Christians, we're not Jews, we're not Gentiles, We are a third race. We're Christians. And friends, that's us today. Every nationality, every race, every class, every IQ level. We're all part of one great big family, are we not? And it's glorious. Now, I need to conclude with one thought here. Here's my final thought. We should see that Cornelius was a undoubtedly good man. Was he not? He was a very good man. He prayed, he fasted, he was generous, and God noticed it. And he knew how to gather the people together to hear the gospel, right? Cornelius was a good man, but he still needed Jesus, right? God did not look down from heaven and say, Cornelius, you're a great guy, oh, you're fine. Cornelius was a good man who needed Jesus. Now listen, let me tell you, bad people need Jesus too. If you're a bad person here tonight, you need Jesus. But you know you need Jesus because you're a bad person. You need to be forgiven, all right? Bad people, great. Jesus is here to forgive your sins. You know you're a sinner. What, am I going to waste my time trying to talk you into the fact that you're a sinner? You're a bad person and you know it. You need to be forgiven. Okay, I want to talk to the good people. 
I, I want to think that maybe there's a Cornelius here tonight. You know, you are good. You, you're, you're a good, upstanding, moral citizen. I mean, you're a good person in the community. You, you do your best, and you even have a reverence towards God. But here's your problem, that just like Cornelius, in some way or another, you're trying to save yourself. What you need to do is repent of that. Maybe you don't have a lot of moral repentance to do. Maybe you don't have to give up drinking or an addiction or this or that or the other thing. But maybe what you need to repent of more than anything is trying to save yourself. And put your focus on Jesus Christ and trust in Him and repent of Him. I am so happy that it's the same salvation for the good and the bad. Good people need Jesus too.